The Alchemical Tech Revolution is sponsored by Anchor. Anchor by Spotify. That's anchor.fm. Hi folks, this is Wayne McCroy, host of the Alchemical Tech Revolution podcast. I'm here to tell you tonight about Anchor. Anchor is one of the best podcast distribution apps out there. Uh, They offer various ways to create, distribute, and monetize your podcast all for free, and they have some of the best built-in uploading, recording, and editing tools available in the industry. From start to finish, they can help you to set up your podcast. So if you are interested in starting a podcast, check out anchor.fm. Or if you are already a podcaster and you're looking for distribution solutions for your podcast, check out anchor.fm. Come with me.
Listening to the Alchemical Tech Revolution, and I am your host, Wayne McRoy. Good evening, everyone. Tonight we're going to go into part two of On the Nature of Consciousness and Dreams, and we are reading from a book by uh, Mr. Uh, C.W. Leadbeater, and this one is titled Dreams, and there's a big long subtitle to the book, but it talks about uh, dreams, where they come from, uh, you know, how. All of this stuff works according to the occultists or the theosophists in this case. Uh, So we're going to go through that. We went through the first portion of it last time. And we covered the mechanism of dreaming and of sleep. uh, The physical mechanism. And now uh, we left off with uh, some of the more mystical connotations involved with this. And we're going to look at uh, section number two here of this and it talks about the etheric brain and we're going to go into some of the other mechanisms uh, of sleep and consciousness and how these things operate according to uh, these teachers of theosophy or occultism so uh, as i always caution people some of this stuff you may need to take with a grain of salt right because uh, there's no way to prove or disprove this but many of the ideas do seem feasible and seem to align uh, with some commonsensical ideas and also with uh, the experiences many people have uh, because a lot of these things are are more subjective, right? And we can't really explain in uh, a sheer physical sense what consciousness is. And uh, if you're like me, I accept that consciousness exists outside of the body and around the body, surrounds the body, And that this is something that is more of a a field, an intrinsic field uh, around the body, per se, and uh, can separate itself from the body. And it continues on uh, when we sleep and also after death. Uh, So this comes down to some, you know, very philosophical thinking when you get down to brass tacks with all of it. You have to think in terms of the soul. Or, you know, in in terms of the spirit and these kind of things and the different manifestations thereof and the different worlds which it steps up through. And many of the the, uh, teachings from the various secret society groups and and many of these uh, sciences, these natural sciences that are tied back to the ancient mystery schools, they all teach very similar things. So I think there is a core of truth to a lot of these ideas Uh, But uh, the way things have been manipulated and twisted through the ages as they've been brought forward by the various secret society groups who had their own uh, agendas, as it were, uh, these ideas may have become a little bit polluted in what their original intention was or what the original information really conveyed. Uh, So with that being the case, I always caution people, take this stuff with a grain of salt. Uh, Can't prove whether it's true or untrue. Uh, So it's information. Put it in your back pocket, hang on to it, and see if it aligns with anything else you've experienced or anything else you've learned, and go from there. 
Uh, so it's an interesting read anyway, and I, I've always been fascinated by this topic, right? The idea of what is consciousness. I mean, this is the core to what it is to be human, to understand consciousness, or to try to uh, try to understand consciousness, I guess, is the best way to put it. Because I don't think it's something we could really truly understand in our limited human capacity here. It's it, something that goes beyond the, the strict physical, as it were. And that's the way that our, our modern society would have us think in these things, is thinking in terms of the strictly material. So, you know, there's something beyond that and something that's lost to our modern science. And that's why it's always good to pick up these older books. This is published in 1903 and look through and see what they were teaching within these esoteric circles at those times and uh, what's still being taught through these various secret society groups today. So it's good to look at these things and consider them uh, because, like I said, there's some validity, I'm sure, that's inherent in the core of some of these teachings. So that's the important point to pick up here. But I'm not saying, you know, you need to necessarily latch onto it and agree with everything that's presented 100% because I'm sure there will be fallacies there as there is in everything else that human hands touch. Uh, so that's the nature of man, right? We're imperfect. And even if we're conveyed perfect information, well, let's face it, we're going to screw it up, aren't we? Because that's just the nature of how we are. Uh, so uh, with that being said, let's continue the reading here because this is some interesting stuff. So section two, the etheric brain. It will be obvious that this part of the organism, so sensitive to every influence, even during our waking life, must be still more susceptible when in the condition of sleep. When examined under these circumstances by a clairvoyant, streams of thought are seen to be constantly sweeping through it, not its own thoughts in the least, for it is sorry, for it has of itself no power to think, but the casual thoughts of others which are always floating round us. And I'm going to pause for a second here. Now, once again, uh, these people in the theosophical circles, they talk about uh, how the clairvoyants can observe these things, right? Uh, these ones that have, uh, <coughs> excuse me, have learned their teachings and have learned uh, some of the mysteries involved with these things and have opened up their third eye, so to see, and have achieved this, I, this uh, concept of clairvoyance or being able to see into the spiritual realms. And that's what they're talking about here. So they're saying uh, that clairvoyance can see this, right? And this is what they observe and record. Uh, like I said, take some of this stuff with a grain of salt because there's no way to prove or disprove uh, that uh, these people are really seeing these things or that, uh, you know, they're, uh, what they're telling us is true. It could be. Maybe it's maybe it is, but maybe it's not. So uh, evidence like that, you have to kind of put on a separate level from some of the things we're being told, right? So they a lot of people in these theosophical circles, they hold up this idea of, well, the clairvoyants tell us this is what it looks like. Um, and like I said, there may be truth to it and maybe not. It's hard for us to know. There's no way we could prove or disprove it. So when you hear that, uh, just keep it in the back of your mind that uh, th you have to take their word for it on this because there's really no other way to go. Uh, but uh, it doesn't dismiss any of the other information at any rate. So let's read on. 
Students of occultism are well aware that it is indeed true that thoughts are things, for every thought impresses itself upon the plastic elemental essence and generates a temporary living entity, the duration of whose life depends upon the energy of the thought impulse given to it. We are therefore living in the mist of an ocean of other men's thoughts, and whether we are awake or asleep, they, these are constantly presenting themselves to the etheric part of our brain. And I'm going to pause for a second there, folks. This is a hugely important idea, okay? Uh, thoughts are things, okay? Uh, there can be no doubt about this. Uh, thoughts do impress themselves into manifestation in the physical in some sense or another. Uh, where they derive from, that's, a, that's another story altogether, uh, you know, we could talk about uh, the various ways that the theosophists and others uh, view these things and how everything manifests down from uh, the world of mind through the astral plane, through the ethereal plane, and into uh, the material plane here. And that's how manifestation starts. It comes, it emanates from source and steps down through these various levels and uh, can become manifest in the physical, in the material, uh, through time and through, you know, certain things through the force of will through the act of will uh, through various ideas like this so this is what they're talking about so they're saying thoughts are things and they're an energetic principle look at it in that way thoughts are an energetic principle that uh, leaves an impression on the ether okay let's put it that way uh, the, the ether being the medium in which we exist and all things exist and move uh, tesla described light as being nothing more than a sound wave in the ether. And, and if you think in these kind of terms and understand, um, like if you look at the, the, uh, the, the example there of sound, well, it travels through the air, the medium. The air is the medium, right? So sound travels through that medium. It needs that medium to travel through because you can't have sound in a total vacuum, right? So it's the same kind of concept, like everything must manifest in some kind of a uh, medium. So the ether is the medium in which we exist, and it's kind of a subplane of the material plane here. And that's how they, they describe it in some of these secret society groups. Well, the ether is the medium in which all these things exist. So thoughts <coughs> can manifest themselves in the ether, and they kind of float around out there and bounce around, and think of it as like kind of an energy, an energetic principle. It's the same thing, like as if uh, if we use the example of, of sound in the air. Like if somebody's out in the woods and they scream, well, the sound's going to travel through the air, through the medium. And uh, it may resonate and resound around if it's like in a valley or something and echo back and these kind of things. And if there's somebody else present to hear the sound, well, they may experience that. Well, this is the same kind of a concept here when you're thinking about thoughts floating around in the ether. That's what they're conveying here. Uh, so uh, that's that's what they're saying in a nutshell. Uh, so let's continue on here because it gets more interesting as we go. So long as we ourselves are actively thinking and therefore keeping our brain fully employed, it is practically impervious to this continual impingement of thought from without. But the moment that we leave it idle, 
The stream of inconsequent chaos begins to pour through it. Most of the thoughts sweep through unassimilated and almost unnoticed. But now and then, one comes along which reawakens some vibrations to which the etheric part of the brain is accustomed. At once, that brain seizes upon it, intensifies it, and makes it its own. That thought, in turn, suggests another. And so a whole train of ideas is started until eventually it also fades away, and the disconnected, purposeless stream begins flowing through the brain again. The vast majority of people, if they will watch what they are in the habit of calling their thoughts closely, will find that they are very largely made up of a casual stream of this sort, that in truth, they are not their thoughts at all, but simply the cast-off fragments of other people's. For the ordinary man seems to have no control whatever over his mind. He hardly ever knows exactly of what he is thinking at any particular moment, or why he is thinking of it. Instead of directing his mind to some definite point, he allows it to run riot at its own sweet will, or lets it lie fallow, so that any casual seed cast into it by the wind may germinate and come to fruition there. So I'm going to pause for a second there, folks. <coughs> Excuse my cough. Uh, so this is kind of a neat idea to think about, isn't it? I mean, this I think we've all experienced to one degree or another where a random thought really pops in our head. And it's like, where did that come from? And, you know, I, I don't, you know, think that that came from me or this kind of an idea. I think we've all had that experience. Well, maybe there's something to this, because if you think in terms of uh, thoughts are nothing more than potential energy floating out there in the medium, right, the ether, and when they come into contact with uh, some other etheric part of the human being, they may, if that etheric part of the human being resonates with it, may become manifest in some way. So you may pick up on that thought. Uh, this would be the same thing with things like impressions you get. If you walk into a place and you suddenly have an impression or if you experience deja vu, right? Um, maybe, just maybe, this is something akin to that. It's an interesting way of thinking of things. So if you consider for a moment that thoughts, we do accept that they are things, right? Uh, there's There's something to that idea that a thought is a thing and it can manifest and it can take on a life and form of its own. This is the, the whole way the concept of the tulpa or the egregore works as well. Uh, it's a real energetic force that's out there uh, floating around. And it's, if it, uh, you know, gathers power uh, or, or goes through and, and a lot of people uh, pick up on the idea or pick up on the thought, so to say, it becomes something uh, that has its own presence of sorts, or it has its own way of manifesting. This is also true for the idea of the meme, or mimetics. And, and this is a whole esoteric science that uh, largely doesn't get talked about, mimetics. Uh, the idea of the meme, the alchemical meme. This is how it takes form, right? Uh, it takes form. It, it starts as a thought, and... Uh, if it, if it gathers enough uh, vital energies behind it, it can kind of take on a life of its own. It, this is also would explain the way the uh, hundredth monkey concept works, right? Uh, we've all heard that analogy being made. So <clears throat> if this is the case, 
Uh, and it seems to me like there's some experiential evidence to back that up or or some type of subjective evidence to back that up that uh, this this is a plausible thing well this kind of is a game changer if you understand this isn't it so we could see uh, how other people can influence our minds even on very subtle levels in this way so <coughs> excuse me again let's continue reading though the result of this is that even when he, the ego, really wishes for once to think consecutively on any particular subject, he finds himself practically unable to do so. All sorts of stray thoughts rush in unbidden from every side, and since he is quite unused to controlling his mind, he is powerless to stem the torrent. Such a person does not know what real concentrated thought is. And it is this utter lack of concentration, this feebleness of mind and will, that makes the early stages of occult development so difficult to the average man. Again, since in the present state of the world's evolution there are likely to be more evil thoughts than good ones floating around him, this weakness lays him open to all sorts of temptations, which a little care and effort might have avoided altogether. In sleep, then, the etheric part of the brain is even more than usually at the mercy of these thought currents, since the ego is, for the time, in less close association with it. A curious fact brought out in some recent experiments is that when by any means these currents are shut out from this part of the brain, it does not remain absolutely passive, but begins very slowly and dreamily to evolve pictures for itself from its store of past memories. An example of this will be given later when some of these experiments are described. And we're going to move on to the next part here. It says part three, the astral body. Now, this is where uh, things might get a little confusing for some if you haven't really delved deeply into some of these teachings that uh, these secret societies put out or these mystery schools, these uh, occult fraternities, these secret brotherhoods, whatever you want to call them. Uh, they all stem from the same basic teachings that derive uh, back in the ancient mystery schools. And some of these are some of the old natural sciences or occult sciences or alchemical sciences. Uh, all of these ideas have been brought forward through the ages, and some have been twisted and convoluted in many ways. Uh, so, you know, uh, we don't get the full picture of what the original information truly is. But we do get a pretty good concept as to uh, what some of it entails. So, that being said... If we're looking at the difference, the distinction between the ethereal form or the ethereal body, the ethereal brain, and the astral brain or the astral body, and there's a distinction. These are two different uh, planes of existence, so to say. Um, they're two different uh, layers, right, of, uh, of, you know, what we would call uh, these different realms of existence that we exist on simultaneously, whether we're aware of it or not. Uh, the consciousness of man transcends through these different layers. Okay, Life is more than just this physical body. Uh, we are more than that. Uh, so that being the case, um, we transcend through these different phases. And the next part we're going to talk about is the astral body. As before mentioned, it is in this vehicle that the ego is functioning during sleep. And it is usually to be seen by anyone whose inner sight is open. I'm going to pause for a second there. That's anybody who has uh, achieved clairvoyance here. 
Um, so let's read that again. And it is usually to be seen by anyone whose inner sight is opened, hovering over the physical body on the bed. Its appearance, however, differs very greatly according to the stage of development which the ego to which it belongs has reached. In the case of the entirely uncultured and undeveloped person, it is simply a floating wreath of mist, roughly ovoid in shape, but very irregular and indefinite in outline, while the figure within the mist, the denser astral counterpart of the physical body, is also vague, though generally recognizable. <coughs> Excuse me again. It is receptive only of the coarser and more violent vibrations of desire, and unable to move more than a few yards away from its physical body. But as evolution progresses, the ovoid mist becomes more and more definite in outline, and the figure within it more and more nearly a perfect image of the physical body beneath it. Its receptivity simultaneously increases until it is instantly responsive to all the vibrations of its plane, the finer as well as the more ignoble, though in the astral body of a highly developed person there would naturally be practically no matter left coarse enough to respond to the latter. Its power of locomotion also becomes much greater. It can travel without discomfort to considerable distances from its physical encasement and can bring back more or less definite impressions as to places which it may have visited and people whom it may have met. In every case, this astral body is, as ever, intensely impressionable by any thought or suggestion involving desire, though in some the desires which most readily awaken a response in it may be somewhat higher than in others. And I'm going to pause for a second right there as we wrap up the section there on the astral body. Uh, this is also called by many in these occult circles the desire body, right? Uh, that you have the mental body, the desire body, um, the what they call the ethereal body, and the the physical material body. So we have all of these different vehicles, they like to call them, that transcend through these different layers, these different planes, realms of existence, of consciousness. Um, and, uh, you know, we're all, it's all bound together in the same thing. But... Uh, this is a vehicle for traveling within those different realms, so to say. Uh, I'm trying to find the, the correct way to phrase this so people can follow along <coughs> without losing them. But uh, essentially, that's what they say, that this, uh, this astral form is more responsive to desires, okay, uh, emotions. Uh, so it's a different type of of consciousness, a different layer of consciousness, so to say. Uh, so it, it's a a more, how should I phrase this? It's, it's more receptive to emotional manipulation. Let's put it that way. It's more receptive to uh, being lured by certain desires or, or certain things like that. Uh, so, you know, when those things manifest in that uh, astral plane, so to say, while we sleep, especially because it says while we sleep, this is where our mind and our body functions, is in the astral. Now, most of the time they claim here, it doesn't leave <clears throat> very far from your physical body, but it dreams, right? It experiences, the mind experiences things based upon some of these, what they would call the passing thoughts that latch on in the etheric, 
and uh, you know some of what our memories and stuff are. So this is one of the mechanisms they claim for dreaming. It happens in the astral body, and it happens in the ethereal brain, right? These are, are two of the core mechanisms for it, along with the physical. But let's continue on, uh, because they also talk about what they call, in this book, and what many of the theosophists call, the ego. And this would be the equivalent of uh, the mind. Like, this is this is the pilot. This is the, the, you know, your soul. This is who you are that steers the ship steers all these vehicles so to say right this is the source the mind the ego <clears throat> the i am that's how they describe it in some of these occult circles the i am this is the thing which uh you know we describe ourselves as this is you know this all ties down to how we identify ourselves and how uh, we are a fractal of the godhead so to say right so these are a lot of lofty ideas bound up in this, uh, but uh, let's continue on because we're more concerned right now in the study of dreaming and sleep. The ego in sleep. Though the condition in which the astral body is to be found during sleep changes largely as evolution takes place, that of the ego inhabiting it changes still more. Where the former is in the state of the floating wreath of mist, the ego is practically almost as much asleep as the body lying below him. He is blind to the sights and deaf to the voices of his own higher plane, and even if some idea belonging to it should, be chance, should by chance reach him, since he has no control over his mechanism, he will be quite unable to impress it upon his physical brain, so that it may be remembered upon waking. If a man is this in this primitive condition re recollects anything at all of what happens to him during sleep it will almost invariably be the result of purely physical impressions made upon the brain either from within or from without any experience which his real ego may have had being forgotten so i'm going to pause for a moment there folks so the ego this could also be uh you know, referred to by some in these occult circles as the higher self, the quote-unquote the higher self. Uh, so this is um, the thing which evolves. This is the soul which man builds while he's here, the thing which evolves. You notice they use the word evolve here quite a bit. And uh, this is a very, very old idea, okay? So when you hear the term evolution, it doesn't arrive with Darwin and Darwinian evolution. This ties all the way back to these ancient mystery schools. The idea of evolution and mankind evolving, and it's an individual process. See, that's where the misconception and misconstruing of things has come. Yes, we evolve as a species, but we also evolve on an individual level according to these teachings. And uh, it's part of the spiritual journey. And that is so much of one of the things that has been convoluted and lost in the modern era, uh, which has been uh, twisted and defamed by these secret societies that have brought forward these teachings. And it's, it's one of the, the big inversions that has been made in our world. The idea of evolution. They tried to tie it strictly to this physical thing and to the species overall the larger the bigger picture 
see, where it's an individual experiential thing, where our spirit, our soul evolves through time. Well, they're taking that whole connotation, that spiritual context and connotation away from the idea. That's what it was intended as. The idea of evolution, it was a spiritual idea, a, a, a spiritual growth idea, not bound to the physical the way that it is now. And that's what Darwinian evolution has done. They've taken the original concept, the idea, and they've inverted it and twisted it into something that is strictly material, uh, a material concept, a base physical concept here in the natural world. And that's what they've tried to equate it to. And it doesn't hold up to scrutiny very well. Uh, although we do make adaptations and stuff like that, uh, we can observe that. But at the same token, this is what's happened. They've inverted the principle and twisted it. They've changed it from a spiritual principle into a physical principle to further trap man's mind here in the material world, in the hyper-materialist viewpoint. Uh, but not to get too hung up on that sidetrack, uh, let's get back to the reading here. So, <clears throat> sleepers may be observed at all stages from this condition of all but blank oblivion up to full and perfect consciousness on the astral plane, though this latter is naturally comparatively rare. Even a man who is sufficiently awake to meet not infrequently with important experiences in this higher life may yet be, and often is, unable so far to dominate his brain as to check its current of inconsequent thought pictures and impress upon it instead what he wishes it to recollect. And thus, when his physical body awakes, he may have only the most confused memory, or no memory at all, of what has really happened to him. At and this is a pity, for he may meet with much that is of the greatest interest and importance to him. Not only may he visit distant scenes of surpassing beauty, but he may meet and exchange ideas with friends, either living or departed, who happen to be equally awake on the astral plane. He may be fortunate enough to encounter those who know far more than he does, and may receive warning or instruction from them. He may, on the other hand, be privileged to help and comfort some who know less than himself. He may come into contact with non-human entities of various kinds, with nature spirits, artificial elementals, or even, though very rarely, with divas. He will be subject to all kinds of influences, good or evil, strengthening or terrifying. And I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. <coughs> Refer back to the shows I did on... Uh, the unseen forces, the elementals, uh, these kind of ideas. Now, these are natural energies that are inherent in the system. When you take a look back and you look at these things and try to observe them from a lens that we're not used to looking at these things with, uh, step outside the box and try to forget everything you know, and look back and understand the way these have been described, and this goes back to Paracelsus and actually before Paracelsus, and many of the ideas that uh, were taught about this have been misconstrued and personified in many ways uh, that should never have happened, uh, and this is what uh, they teach in the, some of these secret society groups now. But these are inherent natural energies that have a, a sort of guided intelligence to them, okay? The elementals. So these are, uh, they describe uh, them here as non-human entities. And there's also what they call artificial elementals. Those would be uh, what we would consider tulpas or egregores created by man. 
so these kind of things, it's an inherent natural energy that has a form of intelligence and uh, it can be guided to do certain things. Uh, so these are inherent energies that uh, can be uh, allegedly experienced or seen on the astral plane. Okay, uh, that's what they claim. Like I said, you have to take a lot of this stuff with a grain of salt because there's no way we could either prove or disprove any of this. Uh, so that being the case, I think there is a kernel of truth involved there uh, because when you in, you know in, think of these things as inherent natural energies, right, that exist and may have some form of intelligence behind them, guiding them or to them, uh, not necessarily a human type intelligence, but a guided intelligence of sorts, then uh, you could kind of understand uh, a little better some of the principles of how things operate in this world. And, uh, you know, it's, it's claimed by these people who claim to know that uh, they could be seen on the astral plane and can be experienced in the form of dreaming by some people. If you uh, happen to venture out in your astral form, uh, depending upon how, quote-unquote, evolved you are in your uh, occult process here, then uh, you might experience some of these things. And even if you do, you probably won't remember them when you wake up. That's what they're saying here. So, once again, um, you know, a lot of this stuff, what do you do with it, right? That's the problem with the nature of this stuff. A lot of it's very subjective and it's very experiential. And if you don't have your experience align with what these people are saying, well, there's no way to prove or disprove it. And that's where it becomes problematic. And that's why a lot of people throw away this type of information. But uh, I, I always urge people, read everything, listen to everybody. Don't believe any of it, though, unless you could back it up and prove it for yourself. Uh, through various sources and, you know, through your understanding and through your subjective experiences. And, you know, if that's the case, if you find something that aligns with what you know, well, that's great. And, you know, but uh, aside from that, do with it what you will. It's information. This is what they teach. And even if you don't believe any of this stuff, right, the important thing is that you need to know there's people in positions of power in this world that very much do. And the things they do to act upon these beliefs in this stuff will affect all of us. So it's important to understand the thought processes here. And I assure you, this is what they teach in these secret societies that run the world, okay? These are the things they teach. This is the secret knowledge. This is the knowledge of the ages, this is, these are the secrets of the ages that they keep locked away from the profane. That's you and me. So uh, they believe in this stuff. They act upon it. And the things they do to act upon it affect us in various ways. So remember that. <clears throat> but let's continue on. Because there's more interesting concepts in here that I think have some kernel of truth to them. And that's the important thing. That's why I go through this stuff. Uh, to fish out the kernels of truth... Uh, that I see that are buried in a lot of this convoluted information at times. So let's continue on. The next portion here says, <coughs> His transcendental measure of time. But whether he remembers anything when physically awake or not, the ego, who is fully or even partially conscious of his surroundings on the astral plane, is beginning to enter into his heritage of powers, which far transcend those he possesses down here. For his consciousness, when thus liberated from the physical body, has very remarkable possibilities. 
His measure of time and space is so entirely different from that which we use in waking life that from our view it seems as though neither time nor space existed for him. I do not wish here to discuss the question intensely, interestingly though it may be, as to whether time can be said really to exist or whether it is but a limitation of this lower consciousness, and all that we call time, past, present, and future alike, is but one eternal now. I wish only to show that when the ego is freed from physical trammels, either during sleep, trance, or death, he appears to employ some transcendental measure of time, which has nothing in common with our ordinary physiological one. A hundred stories may be told to prove this fact. It will be sufficient if I give two. The first, a very old one, related, I think, by Addison in The Spectator. The other, an account of an event which happened but a short time ago and has never before appeared in print. Going to pause for a second there, folks. Remember, this is C.W. Leadbeater. This was written in 1903, so when he's talking about a very short time ago, well, this was a long time ago now, <laughs> but uh, at any rate, let's continue on and listen to some of the stories he's told, and I think we'll find that we've heard similar stories to this before. Let's read on. Illustrative examples of it. It seems that in the Quran there is a wonderful narrative concerning a visit paid one morning by the Prophet Muhammad to heaven, during which he saw many different regions there, had them all very fully explained to him, and also had numerous lengthy conferences with various angels. Yet when he returned to his body, the bed from which he had risen was still warm, and he found that but a few seconds had passed. In fact, I believe the water had not yet all run out from a jug which he had accidentally overturned as he started on the expedition. Now, Addison's story runs that a certain sultan of Egypt felt it impossible to believe this and even went to the impolitic length of bluntly declaring to his religious teacher that the tale was a falsehood. The teacher who was a great doctor, learned in the law, and credited with miraculous powers, undertook to prove on the spot to the doubting monarch that the story was, at any rate, not impossible. He had a large basin of water brought, and begged the sultan just to dip his head into the water and withdraw it as quickly as he could. The king accordingly plunged his head into the basin, and to his intense surprise, found himself at once in a place entirely unknown to him on a lonely shore near the foot of a great mountain. After the first stupefaction was over, what was probably the most natural idea for an oriental monarch came into his head. He thought he was bewitched, and at once began to execrate the doctor for such abominable treachery. However, time passed on. He began to get hungry, and realized that there was nothing for it but to find some means of livelihood in this strange country. After wandering about for some time, he found some men at work felling trees in a wood and applied to them for assistance. They set, to help, they set him to help them and eventually took him with them to the town where they lived. Here he resided and worked for some years, gradually amassing money and at length contrived to marry a rich wife. With her he spent many happy years of wedded life, bringing up a family of no less than fourteen children. But... After her death, he met with so many misfortunes that he at last fell into want again, and once more, in his old age, became a wood porter. 
One day, walking by the seaside, he threw off his clothes and plunged into the sea for a bath, and as he raised his head and shook the water from his eyes, he was astounded to find himself standing among his old courtiers with his teacher of long ago at his side and a basin of water before him. It was long, and no wonder, before he could be brought to believe that all those years of incident and adventure had been nothing but a moment's dream, caused by the hypnotic suggestion of his teacher, and that really he had done nothing but dip his head quickly into the basin of water and draw it out again. This is a good story and illustrates our point well, but of course we have no proof whatever as to its truth. It is quite different, however, with regard to an event that happened only the other day to a well-known man of science. He unfortunately had to have two teeth removed and took gas in the ordinary way for that purpose. Being interested in such problems as these, he had resolved to note very carefully his sensations all through the operation. But as he inhaled the gas, such a drowsy contentment stole over him that he soon forgot his intention and seemed to sink into sleep. He rose next morning, as he supposed, and went on with his regular round of scientific experiment, lecturing before various learned bodies, etc., but all with a singular sense of enhanced power and pleasure, every lecture being a remarkable achievement, every experiment leading to a new and magnificent discoveries. This went on day after day, week after week, for a very considerable period, though the exact time is uncertain, until at last one day, when he was delivering a lecture before the Royal Society, he was annoyed by the unmannerly behavior of someone present who disturbed him by remarking it's all over now and as he turned around to see what this meant another voice observed they are both out then he realized that he was still sitting in the dentist's chair and that he had lived through that period of intensified life in just 40 seconds gonna pause there folks We've all heard stories about this. In fact, we've seen television shows about this kind of thing. A particular episode of Star Trek The Next Generation comes to my mind. It's one where, uh, uh, I forget the exact circumstances, but Picard lives an entire lifetime uh, within the you know this very short time period of, of the episode and then finally awakens back in his regular timeline and has all these memories of this long lifetime that he lived elsewhere. Uh, so this this is something that uh, I think is a story that transcends time and culture, first of all, and that there may be some core uh, kernel of truth to this idea, because we know uh, time is a man-made concept, isn't it? It's a physical bound that uh, we're uh, trapped in, okay? It's the old Saturnian energy at play that exists only here in the material world, Right? And this is one of the uh, one of the strange dichotomies of existence here in this material plane. Uh, we have this this bound of time, and that's the thing. I mean, it's the most valuable commodity that we have living here is time, right? And it doesn't exist. <laughs> that's that's the whole problem. I mean, uh, when you look at it philosophically, time does not really exist. It's a man-made measure. It's a measure of uh, uh, how should we how should we say it? It's it, it's a man-made measure. Let's just leave it at that. I don't want to get too in depth into thinking about that. That's a that's a topic for another show entirely. Talking about that, but this is something which sometimes in the dream state we escape. Have you ever fallen asleep for a very brief time and had a, 
an exceedingly long dream where you, you felt like you lived through days of time or, you know, a, a long period of time and you wake up and it's like, you know, you, you were only napping for 10 minutes or something like that. I've had those experiences. So maybe there's some kind of a distortion involved with this kind of thing. Uh, so, you know, time is not necessarily a one of the uh, binding factors of dreaming. Uh, let's read on, though. Neither of these cases, it may be said, was exactly an ordinary dream, but the same thing occurs constantly in ordinary dreams, and there is, again, abundant testimony to show it. Steffens, one of the German writers on the subject, relates how, when a boy, he was sleeping with his brother and dreamed that he was in a lonely street, pursued by some dreadful wild beast. He ran on in great terror, though unable to cry out, until he came to a staircase, up which he turned, but being exhausted with fright and hard running, was overtaken by the animal and severely bitten in the thigh. When he awoke with a start, he found that his brother had pinched him on the thigh. Richards, another German writer, tells the story of a man who was awakened by the firing of a shot, which yet came in as the conclusion of a long dream, in which he had become a soldier, had deserted and suffered terrible hardships, and had been captured, tried, condemned, and finally shot, the whole long drama being lived through in the moment of being awakened by the sound of the shot. Again, we have the tale of the man who fell asleep in an armchair while smoking a cigar, and after dreaming through an eventful life of many years, awoke to find his cigar still alight. One might multiply authenticated cases to any extent. <coughs> but anyway, going to pause for a second there. So we see that uh, the idea of um, dreams being able to... Uh, kind of uh, extend outside the bounds of normal time here in the material world seems to be a thing, right? Uh, so there's many demonstrable cases of this, and this is one of those subjective type ideas that there's no way to really prove or disprove. But uh, if you've had that experience, you would attest to that being a truth, wouldn't you? Uh, so that's the thing. It's an experiential thing. This is not something that's demonstrably measurable by modern science, so to say, which is all about quantifying everything, as I mention all the time. Uh, many of these things are not quantifiable in that kind of way because they are subjective or experiential. Uh, that does not, you know, discount them or make them untrue, though. See, and that's uh, where in our modern Western culture loses the mark on a lot of this stuff. Uh, because that's exactly what they would say, because it's not uh, scientifically measurable. So they would dismiss it out of hand and say it's nonsense, when that's not necessarily the case, right? But let's read on. His power of dramatization. Another remarkable peculiarity of the ego, in addition to his transcendental measure of time, is suggested by some of these stories, and that is his faculty, or perhaps we should rather say his habit, of instantaneous dramatization. It will be noticed in the cases of the shot and the pinch, which we have just narrated, that the physical effect which awakened the person came as the climax to a dream apparently extending over a considerable space of time, though obviously suggested in reality entire, entirely by that physical effect itself. 
Now, the news, so to speak, of the physical effect, whether it be a sound or a touch, has to be conveyed to the brain by the nerve threads, and this transmission takes a certain space of time, only a minute fraction of a second, of course, but still a definite amount which is calculable and measurable by the exceedingly delicate instruments used in modern scientific research. The ego when out of the body, is able to perceive with absolute instantaneity without the use of the nerves and consequently is aware of what happens just that minute fraction of a second before the information reaches his physical brain. Going to pause for a second there, folks. Remember when we went back through the first portion of this, uh, this episode here, we were talking about how the information gets written uh, into the physical brain from these outside sources from the ethereal or from the astral and you know all the way on up to the the uh, mental plane right uh, where it comes down and it actually writes or engraves the thought into the physical brain that's what this is talking about there's no lag time there's instantaneity in the astral right uh, there's instant knowing your ego instantly knows that the the self the higher self instantly knows uh, the the effect here and uh, can translate that before it's imprinted into the material physical brain. Uh, so this creates this gap in time wherein it would be feasibly, I guess, possible to have an elaborate experience like this uh, because there is that, that uh, gap of time between where it happens in the higher plane uh, to where it's, you know, entrenched into the physical brain. So that's kind of the concept they're going for. But let's read on. In that barely appreciable space of time, he appears to compose a kind of drama or series of scenes leading up to and culminating in the event which awakens the physical body. And when, after waking, he is limited by the organs of that body, he becomes incapable of distinguishing in memory between the subjective and the objective, and therefore imagines himself to have really acted through his own drama in a dream state." This habit, however, seems to be peculiar to the ego, which, as far as spirituality goes, is still comparatively undeveloped. As evolution takes place, and the real man slowly comes to understand his position and his responsibilities, he rises beyond these graceful sports of his childhood. It would seem that just as primitive man casts every natural phenomenon into the form of a myth... So the unadvanced ego dramatizes every event that comes under his notice. But the man who has attained continuous consciousness finds himself so fully occupied in the work of the higher planes that he devotes no energy to such matters, and therefore he dreams no more. And I'm going to pause for a second there, folks. <coughs> notice, it says, that uh, primitive man casts every natural phenomenon into the form of a myth, Right? And it says here, so the unadvanced ego dramatizes every event that comes under his notice. So there's an important idea to the idea of myths, as I've pointed out time and time again. Uh, this is kind of like a, a, a collective uh, formulization of natural principles that happen, right? We uh, utilize them as myth. We tell them as myth. We comprehend them as myth. We personify them as myth. Well... 
the mind of man does the same thing with these experiences in the dream state. All right, he, he transforms it into his own personal drama. So it, it changes uh, any experiences you might have in the dream state or information you come across in the dream state into a, a type of uh, drama of sorts that uh, goes on. You, your, your brain will formulate a story. Your mind, your ego will formulate a story, a personal story uh, around various things that it experiences either externally or internally. And that is what happens when we dream. Uh, that's what one of the explanations is here. So, um, anyway, uh, let's continue on, though. His faculty of prevision. Another result which follows from the ego's supernormal method of time measurement is that in some degree, prevision is possible to him. The present, the past, and to a certain extent, the future lie open before him if he knows how to read them. And he undoubtedly thus foresees at times events that will be of interest or importance to his lower personality and makes more or less successful endeavors to impress them upon it. When we take into account the stupendous difficulties in which, in, or sorry, when we take into account the stupendous difficulties in his way, in the case of an ordinary person, the fact that he is himself probably not yet even half awake, that he has hardly any control over his various vehicles and cannot therefore prevent his message from being distorted or altogether overpowered by the surgings of desire, by the casual thought currents in the etheric part of his brain, or by some slight physical disturbance affecting his denser body, we shall not wonder that he so rarely fully succeeds in his attempt. Once, now and again, a complete and perfect forecast of some event is vividly brought back from the realms of sleep, far more often the picture is distorted or unrecognizable, while sometimes all that comes through is a vague sense of some impending misfortune, and still more frequently, nothing at all penetrates the denser body. It has sometimes been argued that when this prevision occurs, it must be mere coincidence, since if events could really be foreseen, they must be foreordained, and in which case there can be no free will for man. Man, however, undoubtedly does possess free will, and therefore, as remarked above, prevision is possible only to a certain extent. In the affairs of the average man, it is probably possible to a very large extent, since he has developed no will of his own worth speaking of, and is consequently very largely the creature of circumstances. His karma places him amid certain surroundings, and their action upon him is so much the most important factor in his history that his future course may be foreseen with almost mathematical certainty. And I'm going to pause right there, folks. This is a very important bit of information, okay? Especially when you consider it's these people in positions of power in this world that are taught these things and that understand these things, okay? So if they do have, and this is a big if, right? Uh, because there's no way to prove or disprove this. But if they do have the ability to uh, perhaps see into these other realms, the astral plane and these kind of things, and can see into man's psyche in this way. Well, when you look at what was just conveyed in this last passage, this would give them an unprecedented amount of control over the average person, wouldn't it? 
if they could uh, actually uh, be able to maybe see into that person's future and determine, um, you know, with a, a large amount of certainty, that person's actions or course of events that will come about in their life. Uh, and, you know, if you add the idea of a supercomputer to this, well, doesn't that uh, tell you something right there? But uh, at any rate, I don't want to get too hung up on that sidetrack, but it is an interesting, interesting point. Uh, but uh, the author, this C.W. Leadbeater, makes sure to point out that we do, in fact, have free will, although it's more developed in some than others, right? That's essentially what he's saying here. It's more evolved or developed in some than others. Uh, so this is the attitude that many in these secret society groups have, right? Uh, the theosophists being, you know, one of the prime ones here because that's, you know, who this book comes from, the theosophists. Uh, so let's continue on, though. I don't want to get hung up on those side threads here. When we consider the vast number of, event of events, which can be but little affected by human action, and also the complex and widespreading relation of causes to their effects, it will scarcely seem wonderful to us that on the plane where the results of all the causes at present in action is visible, a very large portion of the future may be foretold with considerable accuracy, even as to detail. That this can be done has been proved again and again not only by prophetic dreams, but by the second sight of the Highlanders and the predictions of clairvoyance. And it is on this forecasting of effects from the causes already in existence that the whole scheme of astrology is based. But when we come to deal with a developed individual, a man with knowledge and will, then prophecy fails us, for he is no longer the creature of circumstances, but to a great extent their master. And I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. This is a hugely Im important sentence, right? So... It says here, when we come to deal with a developed individual, a man with knowledge and will, then prophecy fails us, for he is no longer the creature of circumstances, but to a great extent their master. So the whole point here is they want to keep us in the role of being the creature of circumstances. Therefore, we're more predictable and more controllable. When we have knowledge of these ideas and we have our free will and we're able to manifest our will and use our free will uh, with this knowledge then we become uncontrollable we become a free man so to say and uh, this is what they cannot have right this is what they do not want they want us to be creatures of circumstance animalistic in thought, reactive, not critical thinkers, uh, not ones that consider the broad scope of things, consider the spiritual aspects of things, consider these various ideas, these philosophies. They don't want us to be that man of knowledge, and they don't want us to actually be able to uh, uh, develop our will, right? Uh, that's how they refer to it, our will, uh, our will and the knowledge. So if we have the knowledge and we're able to develop our will or evolve our will, then we become very dangerous to them, don't we? 
And how do we do that? Well, we do that by uncovering information like this and considering information like this. And whether this information is true or not is irrelevant. It's the mere fact that we are thinking about it. That's the important thing, that we consider it. We consider there may be truths here, right? And uh, the other important aspect of this is whether you believe any of this stuff or not, remember, People in positions of power in this world very much do, and the things they do to act upon it will affect all of us. And this essentially tells you exactly why. Because they want to keep us that creature of circumstance. See? They don't want us to wake up to this stuff. Why do you think they keep this stuff secret? Hmm? No good could come from secrecy. I'm sorry. Any of these old teachings that were good should never have been kept secret. The problem is greedy people who had other agendas, ulterior motives than the best uh, interests of mankind as a whole, or, uh, you know, uh, people as a whole, they decided to weaponize this information against the rest of us so that they could maintain this kind of control, so they could be the gods of this place. And we see so much of this going on, don't we? Even to this day, that's why these uh, various mystery schools and stuff like this locked up these ideas, right? And this has become twisted and convoluted through time. And you will always invariably have those ones that come out and say, don't cast your pearls before swine bit. And that's why they did this. Or they'll come up with the excuse or the reasoning that, uh, well, the, the Catholic Church, uh, you know, uh, executed them as heretics. So they had to take this information and, and encode it and keep it secret uh, so that uh, they, they weren't called heretics and burned at the stake and stuff. Uh, no, this this uh, secrecy bit started way before then, right? So when you invariably have some of these people that defend the idea of secrecy with these secret society groups, that's many of their arguments, right? That the people, you know, that uh, won't understand it, uh, it's it's the casting the pearls before swine bit. And then it's also, well, they, they had to do this to preserve the information. Otherwise, it would have been destroyed because they would have been burned at the stake as heretics. Uh, and those arguments only hold so much credence or so much weight to them uh, in these regards because the secrecy was going on long before that. And it's always been about uh, a group of a select few who wanted to keep these secrets for themselves so that they could maintain some modicum of power and be the gods of this place, right? They want to be the ones that run the show. Uh, and, and that's why they keep these things secret and why they're hidden to this day. And I would still argue <laughs> there's no good can come from secrecy with these things. No good. Uh, even Jesus said, in secret have I told you nothing, right? He always, he admonished his disciples, in secret have I told you nothing. He was always very open with his teachings. And, you know, this kind of thing is exactly why. Because to hide important information like this is doing a disservice to mankind. These people aren't our friends, these secret society groups. Although many of them, I think, you know, really have good intentions, many of the members they're in, and think they're doing good. Well, they're not doing good. They're doing more harm than good. Now, is this out of necessity at this point? Well, maybe it's out of necessity to some degree or another, uh, but they're complicit in the destructive way that society has been going. And the only way, <coughs> excuse me, to truly change anything is to make this type of information public 
And, you know, if people want to disavow it then, well, that's their business. But make sure the information's available. And that's largely what's gone on through most of human history. The information has not been readily available to any who would seek it or want it. They had to jump through hoops to get it. They had to take initiations and blood oaths and uh, play the little game to get a hold of this type of information. Now we have the benefit of having the internet, uh, probably one of the greatest informational tools ever created in all of human history, makes researching this type of thing much easier. Still very hard to find some of these uh, books and things like this, and there, there's, I'm sure there's still a ton of stuff that isn't even out there digitized on the internet at this point that uh, we may never get our hands on. But uh, at any rate, just understanding some of these basic things is key to... Uh, um, removing our consent from the system that they want to put us in. Let's put it that way. Uh, but boy, I went way off on a side tangent there. So let's continue reading here. But when we come to deal with a... Oh, I just read that part. Okay. True, the main events of his life are arranged beforehand by his past karma, but the way in which he will allow them to affect him, the method by which he will deal with them, and perhaps triumph over them, these are his own, and they cannot be foreseen except as probabilities. Such actions of his in their turn become causes, and thus chains of effects are produced in his life which were not provided for by the original arrangement, and therefore could not have been foretold with any exactitude. And I'm going to pause for a second there. <coughs> Excuse me again with my stupid cough that just won't seem to go away. Uh, but anyway, we see here that uh, this breaks their algorithm of sorts, doesn't it? When you understand some of the things that they don't want you to know when you have this knowledge they don't want you to have and when you have the willpower to do something with it and when you take the step out of your comfort zone and do something with it that's when you become dangerous to the establishment that's when you become dangerous to the power structure that's when you can make a lasting change in society so you know that being the case uh, we see that uh, this, doing this, and not being that uh, creature of uh, circumstance, not being that creature of circumstance, this breaks their algorithm, so to say, right? In uh, this type of uh, occultic way, or, or this type of way. And I would argue that it also breaks the computer algorithms when you do something that steps outside of what would be what they would predict to be the normal uh, modicum of action from you based upon your past behavior and stuff like that. And based upon you being a creature of circumstance. Well, when you do something exceptional outside of what the circumstances would uh, normally confine you to, this breaks their algorithms. This is hugely important as an idea as well. Uh, and I'm, I'm glad uh, we're actually going through this study here on dreams and the nature of consciousness because so much of this is just so important, even on an everyday waking level, to understand that uh, you can empower yourself by being aware and having the knowledge of some of this information and also by acting outside of what your circumstances would dictate to you. 
by stepping out in faith and doing that thing that uh, you've been called to do or that you feel you need to do despite the circumstances and despite the circumstances being stacked against you. When you do that, it breaks their algorithm and it uh, sets their system into chaos, into frenzy. Uh, that's what happens. You, you could uh, essentially uh, start to break down their systems that way. That's what happens uh, when, when you do that kind of thing. When you step out of your comfort zone and you do the unexpected despite the circumstances or you do the thing that you know is right despite the circumstances or what the results of it may be and you do that, well then, if enough of us do that, guess what? We got them reeling. This creates a new set of cause and effect uh, scenarios for them. A chain of effects, it says here, that's produced. So when you do that and you produce this new chain of events, this breaks their algorithm. Then they have to back up and, and start to regroup and try and figure out how, how are they going to uh, respond to this. You keep them responsive and reactive. You keep them in the state of being these creatures of circumstance then. You see, it flips the switch. It flips the script here, right? It turns the controllers into the controlled in this way. And we could all do this, every single one of us. And we all need to stand up and, and start doing this kind of thing. Speak out for what's right. Do the right thing, despite what the circumstances are. Stand your ground, despite uh, what challenges come your way. And eventually the system will crumble because then they don't have the predictive power in order to uh, better establish their plans. And they do long-term planning. And uh, if enough of us can break out of this ideology here and step up, we could make real-world changes just by doing that, just by resisting the things that they want, despite the circumstances. But anyway, that's, that's enough about that. Let's continue on here. An analogy may be taken from a simple experiment in mechanics. If a certain amount of force be employed to set a ball rolling, we cannot in any way destroy or decrease that force when once the ball has started, but we can counteract or modify its actions by the application of a fresh force in a different direction. An equal force applied to the ball in exactly the opposite direction will stop it entirely. A lesser force, so applied, will reduce its speed. Any force applied from either side will alter both its speed and its direction. So, with the working out of destiny, it is clear that at any given moment a body of causes is in action, sorry, a body of causes is in action, which, if not interfered with, will inevitably produce certain results, results which on higher planes would seem already present, and could therefore be exactly described. But it is also clear that a man of strong will can, by setting up new forces, largely modify these results, and these modifications could not be foreseen by any ordinary clairvoyance until after the new forces had been set in motion. And I'm going to pause there, and I would argue the same thing goes for computer algorithms. You see how these things match up one-to-one? -one? Hmm? See, these, these computers with these predictive uh, powers and qualities, they're an artificial knockoff of a natural ability. Uh, as espoused here by the occult sciences. Is clairvoyance a real thing? Maybe. I think there may be something to it. 
Can I say that for 100% certain? No, there's no way to really prove or disprove that. But it seems to me that the modeling of uh, computer algorithms in this way to be great predictors of future outcomes is a type of clairvoyance in itself, isn't it? So this is based upon some natural principle because all of these artificial systems are cheap knockoffs or inversions of natural principles. So therefore, I would say, just arguing uh, from that perspective, that clairvoyance may in fact be a real thing. Now, you know, are these people being straight with us on all of that? Who can say for sure? That's why I say it's it's got to be taken with a grain of salt, a lot of this stuff, but it's information. Put it in your back pocket. Remember it. There's a lot of hugely important concepts that have come out from uh, reading this, uh, this book here. But uh, let's finish up. We're almost done. I'm just going to read this last section here called Examples of Its Use. Two incidents which recently came to the knowledge of the writer will serve as excellent illustrations both of the possibility of prevision and also of its modification by a determined will. A gentleman whose hand is often used for automatic writing one day received in that way a communication professing to come from a person whom he knew slightly in which she informed him that she was in a great state of indignation and annoyance because, having arranged to give a certain lecture, she found no one in the hall at the appointed time and was consequently unable to deliver her discourse. Meeting the lady in question a few days later, and supposing the letter to refer to a past event, he condoled with her on the disappointment, and she remarked with great surprise that what he told her was certainly very odd, as though she had not yet delivered her lecture, she was to do so the following week, and she hoped the letter might not prove a prophecy. Unlikely as such an event seemed, the account written did prove to be a prophecy. No one attended at the hall, the lecture was not delivered, and the lecturer was much annoyed and distressed, exactly as the automatic writing had foretold. What kind of entity inspired the writing does not appear, but it was evidently one who moved on a plane where prevision was possible. And it may really have been, as it is professed to be, the ego of the lecturer, anxious to break the disappointment to her by preparing her mind for it on this lower plane. <coughs> Excuse me. If it were so, it will be said, why should he not have influenced her directly? He may very well have been quite unable to do this, and the sensitivity of her friend may have been the only possible channel through which he could convey his warning. Roundabout as this method may seem, students of these subjects are well aware that there are many examples in which it is evident that means of communication such as are here employed are absolutely the only ones available. On another occasion, the same gentleman received in the same way what purported to be a letter from another feminine friend relating a long and sad story from her recent life. She exp explained that she was in very great trouble and that all the difficulty had originally arisen from a conversation which she gave in detail with a certain person by means of which she was persuaded much against her own feeling to adopt a particular course of action. She went on to describe how, a year or so later, a series of events directly attributable to her adoption of this course of action ensued, culminating in the commission of a horrible crime, which had forever darkened her life.
As in the previous case, when next the gentleman met the friend from whom the letter was supposed to come, he told her what it had contained. She knew nothing whatever of any such story, and though she was greatly impressed by its circumstantiality, they eventually decided that there was nothing in it. Sometime later, to her intense surprise, the conversation foretold in the letter actually took place, and she found herself being implored to take the very course of action to which so disastrous an ending had been foreshadowed. She would certainly have yielded, distrusting her own judgment, but for the memory of the prophecy, having that in mind, however, she resisted in the most determined manner, even though her attitude caused surprise and pain to the friend with whom she was talking. The course of action indicated in the letter not being followed, the time of the predicted catastrophe near, naturally arrived and passed without any unusual incident. So it might have done in any case it may be said. Perhaps so, and yet remembering how exactly that other prediction was fulfilled, one cannot but feel that the warning conveyed by this writing probably prevented the commission of a crime. If that be so, then here is a good example of the way in which our future may be altered by the exercise of a determined will. All right, folks. So let's go through here. Um, next section... All right, we're just going to finish up this next, uh, it's about a page and a half. <coughs> Excuse me. And then we're going to call it a night. Now, the next portion here is called His Symbolic Thought. Another point worth notice in relation to the condition of the ego when out of the body during sleep is that he appears to think in symbols. That is to say that... What down here would be an idea requiring many words to express is perfectly conveyed to him by a single symbolical image. And I'm going to pause right there, folks. Another hugely important point here, okay? Symbolism, symbols. Uh, these represent archetypal ideas. This is what an archetype would be. It's represented by a symbol, and you will be able to convey a huge uh, amount of meaning from one given symbol. And this is uh, another thing that's very important. So in the dream state, okay, uh, your mind will be able to pick up on symbols, symbolic images. So let's continue on here. Now, when such a thought as this is impressed upon the brain, and so remembered in the waking consciousness, it of course needs translation. Often the mind duly performs this function, but sometimes the symbol is recollected without its key, comes through untranslated, as it were, and then confusion arises. Many people, however, are quite in the habit of bringing the symbols through in this manner and trying to invent an interpretation down here. In such cases, each person seems usually to have a system of symbology of his own. Mrs. Crow mentions in her Night Side of Nature, on page 54, a lady who, whenever a misfortune was impending, dreamt that she saw a large fish. One night she dreamt that this fish had bitten two of her little boy's fingers. Immediately afterwards, a schoolfellow of the child's injured those two very fingers by striking him with a hatchet. I have met with several persons who have learnt by experience to consider one particular dream as the certain prognostic of misfortune. There are, however, a few points upon which most of these dreamers agree, as, for example, that to dream of deep water signifies approaching trouble and that pearls are a sign of tears. The factors in the production of dreams. Here we go. 
Having thus examined the condition of man during sleep, we see that the factors which may be concerned in the production of dreams are, number one, the ego, who may be in any state of consciousness from almost utter insensibility to perfect command of his faculties, and as he approximates to the latter condition, enters more and more fully into possession of certain powers transcending any that most of us possess in our ordinary waking state. Going to pause for a second. Remember... The ego, as he says, this would be equated to the higher self or the uh, uh, the I am, the uh, the soul, so to say, on the uh, mental plane, the uh, the source uh, of who we are and how we experience things. Okay, this would be like the the guiding principle that is us, the I am. Uh, <coughs> so this is what they call the ego here. So number two. The astral body, ever palpitating with the wild surgings of emotion and desire. Number three, the etheric part of the brain, which with a ceaseless procession of disconnected pictures sweeping through it. Number four, the lower physical brain, with its infantile semi-consciousness and its habit of expressing every stimulus in pictorial form. When we go to sleep, our ego withdraws further from Sorry, when we go to sleep, our ego withdraws further within himself and leaves his various encasements freer to go their own way than they usually are. But it must be remembered that the separate consciousness of these vehicles, when they are thus allowed to show it, is of a very rudimentary character. When we add that each of these factors is then infinitely more susceptible of impression from without, even than it ordinarily is, we shall see small cause to wonder that the recollection on waking, which is a sort of synthesis of all the different activities which have been going on, should generally be somewhat confused. Let us now, with these thoughts in our minds, see how the different kinds of dreams usually experienced are to be accounted for. All right, folks, we're going to end it right there. And uh, the next chapter here in this book talks about different types of dreams. And maybe I'll do a another part of this. I'll probably call it something different. We'll, we'll do a, a look at various different types of dreams. And uh, uh, perhaps we'll explore that avenue of thought. And we'll go through the rest of this here on another time. Uh, so... That's about all for tonight, then. I hope this was informative. I hope it was interesting. I found this stuff hugely interesting, and uh, much of the information uh, within this book relating directly to dreams and also indirectly to many other facets of uh, how we experience the world and, and how we view things and how consciousness works. There were some real gems uh, in this book Uh, So I think we will revisit here chapter 5, starting at chapter 5, the different types of dreams. And we'll we'll just do a a different segment on that at some point, uh, because I find this a fascinating study. Uh, So thank you for tuning in, and we will catch you next time. Have a good night, everyone.
Introducing the new home for free speech, Free World FM, the alternative to the alternative. Keep on talking in the free world. That's freeworld.fm. Coming soon.